I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Kristen Lovejoy. Chris is the CEO of Blue Vector. Prior to her role at Blue Vector, she served as a general manager of IBM Security Services Division, charged with the development and delivery of managed and professional security services to IBM's clients worldwide. In addition, she served as IBM's global CISO and VP of IT Risk. Chris is a recognized expert in the field of security, risk, compliance, and governance, with appearances in Forbes, CNBC, NPR, and USA Today. Within the past five years, she has been recognized in several publications and named one of eWeek's 2012 Top Women in Information Security that everyone should know. She also holds U.S. and EU patents for object-oriented risk management models and methods. Additionally, she is a member of numerous external boards and advisory panels, including SC Magazine's editorial board and GrowTech Ventures. In this episode, we discuss her start in information security and risk, what worries her about the RSA conference, AI and machine learning, and what that means for security, emerging threats, advice for CISOs, communicating risk management, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thank you for listening. And as a quick note for this interview, please bear with some of the background noise. We had to find a kind of unique and interesting open space to do some of these recordings. So please bear with me while there's a little bit of background noise here and there, but the content is still great. Well, Chris, thank you for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Thank you. I'm great. Well, great. How are you enjoying RSA so far and its craziness? Uh, it is just as crazy as one would expect. Yeah, so. it's it's kind of more over the top and almost surreal <laughs> in, in walking around, you know, downtown uh, San Francisco with the bus ads and the things. And it's, you're really in just immersed in cybersecurity everywhere when you look around. Oh, yeah. And what's absolutely fascinating to me is that everybody has the same message. Yeah. So as a, you know, as a lay person walking around RSA, it must just be incredibly confusing trying to figure out, well, what do you actually do? Right. Um, because if you read the labels, you know, everybody does machine learning. Uh, okay, I, I'm not exactly sure <laughs> what that's supposed to mean, but apparently everybody does it. Yeah. We'll come back to the machine learning, but tell me a little bit about your background. And from what I understand, it was more along the lines of risk management, but how did that kind of uh, occur? Was it formal training or did you, how did you end up where you are? Uh, it wasn't even remotely um, aligned to risk management, though you could say in a, just a kind of a strange way. Um, I was actually English poli-sci um, major in school. And I really, when I got out of school, I wanted to work um, in foreign service or on the Hill. And I ended up working in politics, um, public service for a bunch of different people like Mario Cuomo and Elliot Engel and ended up in um, uh, Yonkers. And there is a point to the story. Um, so I was in Yonkers in the early 90s during the housing disick um, crisis and helped settle that. And, you know, it was very, very altruistic, you know, wanted to save the world, I've always wanted to save the world, and got myself incredibly burnt out. And I, you know, say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I did what some women do, which is they marry somebody they're really not destined to be with forever. But in any case, um, I got married and ended up uh, with my husband at the time, who was uh, in the Marine Corps, a pilot. And moved to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, which if anyone's had the opportunity to visit would realize there is not much to do in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, other than, you know, perhaps volunteer. Mm. So uh, losing my mind, I started volunteering a lot. I was running a uh, homeless, uh, uh, like a soup kitchen and a shelter and doing a lot of work for the spouses of the deployed Marines. At the time, it was the Bosnia um, crisis and then you know, and Persian Gulf, et cetera. So I was running something called a key volunteers program, and 
one of the things I struggled with was um, how to have the spouses I was working with communicate with their husbands while they were on float because at that time no cell phones so you'd have to wait for the guys to come into port and it would be six months nine months and you know trying to get in contact with them was impossible so I read this thing about this internet and I and computer communication I thought wow this is a really great idea I'll raise some money and buy some computers, and we will start connecting the um, spouses to their husbands while they're in port. Little did I know that you actually have to have somebody on the other side picking up the communication, but you know, (laughs) that came later. (laughs) So I bought the computers, and I brought them down to the USO, and nobody knew how to configure them, so I bought this book, and it was like TCPIP 101, and realized I could actually read binary. Um, Lo and behold, who knew? Um, and so that started my journey into IT and networking. And so I got some jobs as a network engineer down there, um, connecting some of the offices, the remote offices like, you know, J.D. Edwards or uh, New York Life, Mass Mutual, into their backbones, their corporate backbones in Raleigh. And kept doing that. When, I got, uh, when we got transferred to uh, Washington, D.C., I started working for a consulting company as a network engineer. And lo and behold, they put me at, on a contract with one of the um, intelligence agencies. And so I was doing some, actually implementing the, um, the internet lines. I was like crimping wires and you know, all that kind of stuff at one of the agencies. And at the time, they were implementing, um, believe it or not, Microsoft proxy server as kind of their uh, firewall and then using routers um, uh, to do a lot of the security protection. And so I got kind of roped in to doing that kind of configuration and doing some pen testing. Um, And after that contract was up, I went from um, that consulting company to another one which was one of the world's first internet security startups, uh, ICSA.net. They are still ICSA labs. They do um, testing of malware products, et cetera. Um, But uh, at the time, they were spinning off a new company called TrueSecure. So TrueSecure, for those who remember 25 years ago, was uh, like a managed services provider. And we did um, a a service around securing websites. So I was hired as an ethical hacker, and so I was providing those services, and I was really um, the only employee at the time that was delivering services. So we kind of made it up as we were going along. And so I helped develop out the true secure product offering and the services offerings, and um, eventually became the VP of services uh, for that company. And when um, TrueSecure got sold, I ended up going with a friend to another uh, security company and was their CISO, CIO, VP of services, small company, you get to wear a lot of hats. Sure. And went from there to IBM and just kept going in the security world. So had absolutely no interest as a kid in security. Um, frankly, wanted to be the editor of the New York Times Book Review or be a congressperson myself. But um, if you had asked me then, would I end up here? Never would have thought about it. So while you were doing some of the hands-on work, it sounds like you, you did have to transition into more strategic and leadership roles at those different points. What was that transition like, and did you miss being able to do the hands-on work while you're having to be more stepping back and looking at the larger picture? You know, I've always, um, I'm kind of like one of those evenly split left brain, right brain people. And so, you know, what you'll find about me is um, I continue to keep my hands a little dirty. So, you know, download some tools and I, you know, check out the network when I'm sitting in the, you know, conference or, you know, just for fun, see what's going on. You know, even when I was in IBM and I was leading a, this massive p I'd still do some ethical hacking on the side just to keep my skills fresh. So I think, you know, in this particular field, you don't necessarily need to be a domain expert, but in order to be a leader that, you know, particularly um, the developers and those that are providing the security services, for them to respect you, you got to be able to talk at least a little bit of their lingo. And so, you know, I've always been fascinated by it and like to sort of dabble in it because I like to understand how it works. Um, But I also think, you know, it's helped me moving into a strategic position because, again, that it has allowed me to communicate um, more effectively than I think I otherwise would have been able to. I also found with, with me, I, I in, in some of those same 
same kind of things. You, you almost have to keep your, your street cred with the younger ones. And uh, if, they, if they suspect for a second that you, your, your skills wane a little bit, you kind of lose a little bit of status in their eyes. Um, so you're always having to kind of um, you know, keep up with them. But also I, f- I feel it, it does help in the strategic roles, and, and, and maybe you do too, that it kind of helps you you know, work out the signal and the noise, particularly at something mm-hmm. like RSA where you hear every, everything can solve every problem for everybody. You really need to be able to get your hands dirty and go, wait a minute, uh, this is not going to report right, or just something simple yeah. if, if you don't have those hands-on experience. Right, and you don't understand, you know, h- how it actually works and the problem it actually solves and the person that's going to actually buy it, and all those things come together. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you first joined IBM in the uh, about 2007, and the com- company didn't have a outwardly-facing security division. Correct. I mean, it was, uh, and we discussed a little bit before we started recording, but you know, I came from IBM country, and, and now I, I grew up with the the Gershner age of it kind of changing from a consulting, or changing to a consulting company from strictly an IT consulting, still focusing on large enterprises. But how did you change their mindset to start focusing on cyber security at that point, you know, 11, 10 years ago? So, you know, when I came in, um, I was hired under a gentleman by the name of Al Zoller, who is the general manager of the Tivoli brand. Uh, you know, they were doing a lot of the ITIL systems management. And he, he was always an advocate of security. And I think, you know, step one is tone at the top. And, you know, in order to change the direction of any organization, you have to have sponsorship. And he was the sponsor. Um, and he was always very forward-leaning. So when I, I came in as part of an acquisition, he gave me the role of um, security strategist. And, you know, he told me, this is going to be hard because you, you own nothing. You're responsible for everything. You own nothing. And so your job is really going to be to get the people in IBM to recognize that, you know, yes, security is something that needs to be built into everything we do. Because at that time, IBM's mindset is, we don't need a security division because everything we do is inherently secure, which I think is admirable. But Al also said, by the same token, you know, it also, there is a distinct buyer in the market for this kind of, these technologies and services. So um, your job is to go forth and identify those services and products within the IBM corporation that could be part of an ecosystem, a part of a platform that we could actually define and deliver at a fixed price to our customers. So that's really what I was doing is just saying, you know, you, this thing in Rational, that looks good, that's over here. GTS, this comes over here. Tivoli, these three things come over here. This becomes sort of the bones of the business. Um, and, you know, it was when I was kind of, we were just about to launch that division when I was actually tapped and asked to become our first global CISO, um, which was a bit of a shock. <laughs> so I left rather abruptly from that one role and then took the next one, which was really to kind of orchestrate lots of piece parts within IBM internal and create a, um, a more coherent security structure, if you will. Mm-hmm. What were some of the challenges you faced kind of reorienting a large global company to think about uh, well, managing risk at that level? Um, uh, this, is a, this is a really great question. You know, I, you know, at the end of the day, the, I think the trouble that security people have is we tend to be overly complex in how we communicate both the risk and the the risk and and the value of managing that risk. And so, you know, one of the things that I found in IBM is if you could create a structure by which you explain to, um, you know, sort of your administration, if you will, you know, when you, there's lots of risk out there and you're never going to be able to address all risk all the time. So there's nothing, and we could spend all of our money and never achieve 100% risk. That said, you know, what we need to be thinking about is um, managing risk is like managing health. You know, everybody is um, subject to viruses and bacteria at any given time and you know, different, different places you live, different jobs you do, increases or decreases your risk. And the job of a CISO is to understand, like that biological unit, what is sort of the enterprise health? What, what is it that we need to look for? What do we need to worry about? 
And then what are the controls? And controls are like, you know, sort of the basic, basic health controls that you would implement that can help maintain or manage that risk. And so I created for IBM something called the Essential Practices Framework. And the way I described it is, you know, but when you build a house, you put in certain things. You put in a foundation, you got your framing, and you've got your electricity, you got your plumbing, and all of those things kind of go in a certain order, but you don't only focus on one. You don't just focus on plumbing. And so when we build our house from a security perspective, what we need to have is the management structure, the people, the technology, and the process to ensure that that house goes up in the way we expect it to go up. Now, that house might be in a floodplain, so it means that we're going to have to do some additional things. And that's my job is to say above and beyond that 80%, that 80-20% rule, this is what we're going to do. And I think when I got people's heads around you know, the fact I wasn't going to go crazy and that the things I was recommending were these are the basic things everybody needs to do. And the things that we need to do in addition, like around code security, are unique to us because of the risk that we face. And I think having that conversation over and over and over again with people within the organization that were not necessarily, they didn't have a budget, they didn't, these are the CFOs and the chief legal officers and the chief marketing officers, and they didn't own security, but they had to take ownership of security. And so I focused a lot of my effort managing and getting IBM's head around security by talking to the people that would eventually kind of swamp the system and make it happen. So that was my approach. So with some of that approach, trying to make um, those internal people that were champions of you kind of heroes in their own right to others around them. Exactly. And, I, and also recognizing I couldn't be successful unless they were taking ownership of some of the changes. So for instance, you know, back this years ago, Doing things like web filtering was very unpopular, right? You know, like still is. Yeah. It's terribly unpopular. You know, so I had to, you know, bring, you know, and people would think about it as, oh, you're monitoring me, right? You're stopping me from, and it's not that. So I'd have to go to these folks and say, okay, so l let me just, you know, sort of, let's talk, let's have real talk. Let's let's tell you what this actually means. If the zero-day malware gets through the perimeter and somebody you know, downloads it onto their laptop, and it's likely gonna come from a shoe shopping site or blah, 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 um, then you know, these are the impacts. It's a developer, he writes this code, he or she writes this code, new malware is implemented in the code, we upload it into the code stream, we deliver it to our customers, and now we have 100,000 customers with a problem. They've got malware-infected technology. What do you think that means? That's bad, right? Okay, so we gotta deal with it. Well, we don't have that problem. You know, our engineers are not going to go shoe shopping. Okay? So what I did is I, I ran a, a pilot to show, yes, indeed, not only were they going to shoe shopping, they were going porn sites, they were going, you name it, they were going everywhere because it was a totally uncontrolled environment, as people do. And so when the executives saw that, they were like, oh, I get it right? There's actually risk here. Yeah. You know, I, I, I get, so web filtering isn't about monitoring people, it's about protecting the company. And so, but the, my discussion and description of these are the bad things can happen, this zero day could go and then boom, and then the world ends, didn't care. But when I told them it could happen because, let me show you the evidence, mm -hmm. because people are going to go shoe shopping, they're going to go to porn sites. If we're not blocking them, they're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> I got to know. Thank you. I found a, re a good quote from, uh, from one of the articles uh, that was speaking about you. And it said, uh, one of her major strengths is that she can make security relevant for non-technical audiences. So how do you shape that conversation out of the IT realm uh, where people can be kind of fearful of IT and make it relatable to them? You try to make it funny. That's what I always found. You know, kind of funny, sometimes kind of gross. You know, some of the, you know, better analogies I came up with was like one, somebody was saying something about, oh, well, so why is it that a computer that hasn't been scanned or registered, why can't they just join the network? I said, okay, so if you're walking down the street and you find a toothbrush lying in the street, are you going to pick it up and stick it in your mouth? Like, no. So I'm not putting your computer on my network either. It's the same thing. Like, oh, I get it. You know, but to 
bring it down to that level mm-hmm. so that people have this sometimes somewhat gross image, but they can, they, it's like, uh, it's a visceral, oh, I, I understand now why. Okay, so what makes a clean toothbrush? Okay, well, this is what makes it. I'm not talking about a perfect toothbrush, but a clean toothbrush. This is what you have to do. Okay. But things like that seem to work. Kind of make it relatable. Yeah. Definitely. And so, you know, you kind of now develop into this this sizzle role at IBM, and you start seemingly talk a little bit more about risk management, which, in my opinion, is really where we need to focus, you know, business risk management and not necessarily IT security. But is risk management harder to sell to an organization than cybersecurity? How do, how do we make you know, kind of risk management sexy to an organization? <laughs> I have to say, I had a, um, it's so funny that you would point that out because you know, the way it worked in IBM from a, a CISO perspective is I really reported into um, a group, an advisory group. It was headed up by, at that time, um, John Kelly, who was the head of research, and all of the um, leaders, the SVPs under Ginny, with the exception of Ginny, were part of this group. They were my steering committee, and they'd make all the decisions. They approved my budget, they approved my plans, everything went through them. And when I started that committee, I called it the IT Risk Committee, and nobody came. I changed the name to the Cybersecurity Advisory Committee. Everybody came. Cybersecurity and security and risk, they're all the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just cyber has sexy, uh, sex appeal, so you stick the name on and everybody wants to join. So that's, the, that's the practical reality. You know, at the end of the day, it is all about managing risk. And I don't really care whether you call it information security or cybersecurity or plain old security or something else. It's the process by which we manage risk. You know, there's a, a vulnerability, that's a hole, that a threat, which is an actor or a piece of code in the, the wild, is going to be able to exploit. And my job as a CISO is to recognize those pairs and recognize the impact that those pairs can create and then implement controls to manage either the vulnerability or to manage the threat. That's the process of risk, of managing risk. Again, I don't care what you call it, but that's what it is. We should, well, maybe we come up with like uh, next-gen risk management, and that might you know yeah. kind of spice it up a little bit. <laughs> Cyber risk, yeah. Cyber risk management, exactly. And which also brings up you know kind of something that I'm try- I'm starting to see kind of change in the market a little bit. Which I'm you know right now we still have a large uh, or a high percentage of the CISOs that report to kind of an IT function under the CIO. Is that role better served, uh, aligned with different areas within the organization? I've, you know, I've got a maybe a funny perspective on that in so much as, you know, every organization I've worked with has such a different culture. And, you know, my first and foremost, my belief is that security is a team sport. And so I highly advise every organization to have that kind of steering committee like I had, which was the chief marketing officer, the chief legal officer, you know, the head of the uh, business units, et cetera, to participate, to understand the risk. So I got them together. They were my steering committee. And what I would do is if they if I had an incident that had to be disclosed publicly, I would call them. They were the first stop. I would review the incident with them, and I would not release to law enforcement or to a public, any kind of public entity unless they gave the okay, right? So that was sort of primary job. Secondary job was to understand our risk, understand our plan, and to approve our budget. That worked really well um, because everybody in that room took ownership for every change I made and advocated it through the organization. So whatever organization you have, I highly advise you to work for that kind of committee then who you report to, it doesn't matter. That's, that's neither here nor there. That's just a budget holder placement. Now, that, but that's culture. That's, uh, you know, if you're actually reporting to somebody and all the decisions go through them, that's bad. Wherever you're placed, I don't care if you're CLO, you're the CFO, CEO, C, whatever XO it is, if you don't have a group of senior management that's willing to back you up, you're not going to do your job. Well, there's part of that too, where that you know that senior management or somebody high enough that needs to um, maybe take ownership of that risk too, not just on decisions, but also on on things that might not get implemented oh, or might change. That's exactly right, because that's just as important as for people to recognize and accept the risk. Because you know, there's certain things we didn't do where I'd say we need to do this, and for whatever reason we couldn't. I'd say fine. But I'm 
documenting the fact this is an open risk item. These are the controls, this is the cost. We have determined when we racked and stacked these risks that this risk doesn't meet the threshold worthy of investment. Okay, but it's here. Because, but then we also have to recognize that risk changes. And that is the other thing that this committee did is I would, I believe that the process of managing risk is not a finite once a year process. It's a continuous process. So what my team would do is actually update our risk map on a quarterly basis. And we would present the risk map to that steering committee to show how things changed. Because threat changes. You know, different, you know, you might have a different business unit. You might have made an acquisition. You may be doing business in a different country. Like, for instance, if you start doing business in Africa, your risk is completely changed. Completely changed. And it's because of there are certain foreign powers that look at Africa as being their colony. And so what happens is when Western businesses begin to build out infrastructure um, in Africa, all of a sudden you're going to attract attention. You're going to see a lot of spear phishing, you're going to see a lot of just targeted attacks. That is introduced because of your aims of going to business in particular locations. So you have to have that awareness. And so having that, that committee that can keep you aware of the big business plans and strategies so that you can do the risk assessment, change the map, and then enable yourself to morph your controls is really important. Did you find in, in some of those instances that the committee almost had to chase down the business decision makers at certain points, or did they start coming to you to say, hey, look, here's something new that we're thinking about undertaking. What are the risks? It's the, it's the latter. When they start using, I think, I, you know, that's the question people will ask sometimes is how does a CISO know they're successful, is when they start acting like a consultant to the business, that's when... when when other parts of the business actually own the budget, when bit the business comes to you and asks for your help in the architecture, that's when you're successful. And in fact, I think today we're undergoing, and it's something that I'm, I find surprising that people don't talk about more, but the, the typical CISO function is transforming drastically, dramatically from where it was as we adopt Agile and DevOps. So IBM was underwent a radical transformation of its own internal IT security function based on changes in the development process. Because, you know, one of the things um, people don't realize is that cloud has, has dramatically changed just how we do things and how we have to manage risk. Because now with cloud, I no longer have an opportunity to work with the application owner to design the security controls. These things are happening so quickly. So I got cloud, so I have infrastructures available immediately. I got my talent pools. They own these components. Now they're building stuff. I don't, once upon a time, security was very, I define the risk, I define the policies. The policies would give way to standards and configurations. We'd provide those to the application security guys. They'd implement them, and then we would test them to see if they'd been adhered to. Don't work like that anymore. Now we got people building stuff and throwing it out. So security officers can no longer build policy other than it shall be, you know, secure. I, I don't know what that means. Can't build configurations because, you know, the components they use are changing every day. They're using widgets they're taking from third parties. So the role of of the security organization is a consulting organization. So what we were doing in, in IBM is actually taking our people and putting them as consultants into the teams. So we were having them sit in the teams and act as consultants within the teams. And then their role was really to do sort of the QA afterwards, the continuous testing, and to assure them as they were going through the testing process that it met the, from a guidelines perspective, it was okay security. And we never had any bars to define what that meant other than we ran these code evaluations and the code looked pretty good. That's all you could do. But there's no standards there. And that's what security is all about, is standards. And so when you think the new security world is a world that has no policies, that has no standards. And so the organization has to completely shift to a consulting model to be able to support that. What are some of those metrics and, and kind of KPIs that could be built into you know, some of the modern architecture that people should kind of use as measuring sticks and guidelines to look for? Yeah, and it's, I think it is very code-centric. 
So one of the, I think, you know, and it's an unfortunate thing that even today that the security organization, the CISOs, they typically don't own the acquisition of application security tools. Um, but I would say that most of the standards that, in, that have to be adhered are code-centric standards. So um, one of the things I would always suggest, you know, an organization have is, you know, a secure engineering framework, sort of loosely defining the kinds of controls that need to be implemented. So all, you know, technologies need to be authenticated, tech applications that uh, have this kind of, you know, sensitivity level need to have two-factor authentication, you know, that kind of basic stuff. Um, if you're using Python, it has to be secured this way. If you're using Java, it has to be secured this way. Um, and then I highly advise having the security organization become experts in the use of the AppSec tools so that they can run them on behalf of the development organizations and help them understand what the outputs mean. Yeah. And then over time, as you begin to see patterns emerge, you can begin to implement those patterns as policies, but that's going to take time for us because we're in just a free-for-all right now. Sure. Um, so kind of giving everything you've known um, in your career, what, what are some of the things that kind of keeps you awake at night in you know, 2017 with cybersecurity? You know, it's interesting. I um, and and forgive me because I'm going to sound a little bit political right That's now. That's fine. Right, but um, yeah, I was I was traveling in Tokyo last week. My husband was in Bangkok, and um, he, I he and I are we travel a lot. Like I've I can show you my passport. I'm one of those, you know, multiple sets of pages kind of person. I know they don't do that anymore, but. Um, I've traveled more than the average person, and I have never been afraid to travel. This past week, I have never, ever had anybody scream at me, any American, and nothing. I was in Tokyo, getting off out of Tokyo Station, and a guy started screaming at me, screaming, and all I could hear was evil, 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 American evil. And my husband told me um, when he got back that a guy, I mean, this is Thailand, a guy spit in his face. Wow. Yeah. So what, I, what I've been seeing and this is and so I think there's a there's an anti-American sentiment right now and I think that sentiment is growing and one of the things I, I've been talking about for a while now and telling people to keep an eye on is the fact that you know when I was at IBM I was involved in like every incident known to man right because we our incident response team was responsible for IBM plus IBM strategic outsourcing customers plus selling to customers we had thousands of customers and if there was a big one, I'd get involved personally. Um, and, you know, if you break it down, you see that like 98% of the attacks where there was an impact, the, the responsible party was really motivated by greed. You know, it was all cybercrime gangs, their identity theft, whatever. You know, when you sort of mash it down, it was money. It was all yeah. motivated by money. Um, the second smaller group, that 2%, was socially motivated. Most of it was like up Wall Street, you know, just social dynamics, people, sit-ins, but, you know, online. Over the past eight years or so, we began to see an increase. And anybody that's involved in this field will tell you, you see from a statistical perspective an increase in the number of attacks that are more socially motivated, particularly from places in, um, in the Middle East, and then what I'm looking at is we've got a dynamic where America is not very well liked. You've got a situation where in the Middle East, you have to recognize that a lot of, even places like Iran where they say, yeah, 70% of the population has internet. No, they don't. They have access to the Iranian internet. They don't have access to the internet. So what we're seeing is wide swaths of the Middle East, Afghanistan, Sudan, Yemen, um, Iran, are... ISPs are setting up shop. And so they're going to go from 2% of the inter of the population having internet access to 70 to 90% of the inner of the population having internet access. So huge numbers of people who really don't like us <laughs> right now. All of a sudden online. All of a sudden having access. Now, you think that, you know, you might be saying, "Oh, that's kind of, you know, whatever, that's crazy." You go back and look at the statistics of what happened in places like Nigeria and Eastern Europe, when all of a sudden Eastern Europe went from almost no internet penetration to 100% internet penetration, you had educated people with no jobs, 
what do you think they're going to do? They're going to go to work and make some money, and the best way of doing it is cybercrime. It's not a miracle. Nigeria, the same thing happened. Internet access, now all of a sudden you have the Yahoo boys that are making a lot of money off the internet. In the Middle East, there isn't a lot of activity that is motivated by greed. You look at the statistics, it's activity motivated by anger. So what we're doing is we're introducing an America that is not very well liked into a world where, I'm sorry, people can do really bad things. Like really, really, really bad things. And what keeps me up at night is the fact that we've got our head in the sand. And we are particularly critical infrastructure, which is you know where our company is really focused on right now, it's terrifying. It, you know, even now, 25 years later, I've been in this field, and the just the level of naivete in most of these organizations still is—it's just mind-boggling. And you know what else keeps me up? To, that, that I'm on my high horse now. Go Sorry. I look around, and I, I have to say, it just irks me to no end. I walk around that RSA floor and I know most of those people are like me. They're out they're they're altruistic. We're here because we want to save the world, right? Yeah, it's nice to make money and all that stuff, but we we're here because we actually care about people and care about the world. And if we weren't doing this, we'd be in law enforcement or something else. How dare a lot of these vendors put themselves out on the floor with vaporware? They take money and then they have products that don't work and they sell them to people. And these people, they know we're naive and they sit there and they laugh about it. I'm sorry, as a CISO, I'm putting my trust in you. You're going to sell me something, you're going to tell me it works? Well, shame on you if it doesn't. And it just kills me. I look out at that floor today and I'd say 60, 70% of those companies out there, their technology doesn't work. And they are making it hard for people to be successful because they don't know what to buy. They don't know the truth. They don't know what works. And, and that's, that scares me. No, I, I agree. I, I, I was walking around last night and it was kind of surreal again seeing this, the, the ads everywhere and just being in this immersion of just noise about it and not you know, the same thing. It's like I, I'm educated in the field of a buyer of services. I don't, you know, I don't know one thing from another. And then when I go and I listen to some of the different panels and, and follow people that uh, are founders of a lot of these companies and hear how they build the companies from angel funds in re- investing to getting their series A to where they have to take those jumps to basically market something that's not ready for the market yet and come here to RSA and do the dog and pony show and basically say, yeah, we can sell you something that's not ready yet and they're not completely honest with their, <laughs> their no. customers. And it, it has that worry that there's a lot of uh, noise around this. And then you know, when these companies go, people like us are going to be here in five years and people are going to turn to us and say, hey, what happened? You guys were supposed to be doing, you know, kind of vetting this stuff. Yeah. And the people that sold the stuff will be gone. That's exactly right. But you look at it, the, there's so much money in this market right now. And, you know, it's funny because when you go through it, you, how much are they spending? Oh, you know, 70% of it is on sales and marketing. You know, 20% is on R&D. Oh, come on. You know, when are you going to be profitable? Mm, I don't know, 2028, you know, yeah. <laughs> seriously? Yeah, well, that's good. Then they focus R&D on uh, when they get their Series B funding. That's when they turn back to that. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, it is a little scary. But, you know, it, and maybe another topic, too, is, you know, we talk about there's this, you know, it comes out year after year that there's this, uh, we don't have enough people in the industry. There's yeah. always this, this skill shortage. And I know you were named in 2014 a woman in IT security and it's uh, in a number of other publications as well, being kind of recognized as a, a woman and a leader in this field. Um, so is being a woman in cybersecurity a challenge? Um, you know, it is. It's, it's interesting. I, I never... I never really thought it was. You know, I've, I've always been kind of funny and so much as when people would say, wow, you're a woman, I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> and so what? <laughs> um, like, I never felt it, it held me back. I do know, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. It's a very practical thing. It's hard to be heard because, you know, a woman's voice is somewhat softer, you know, and if you try to speak over a group of guys, you're seen as shrill. So it's like one of those stereotypes that you have to combat, but you know, like at the end of the day, who cares? So I'll speak louder, whatever. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, what it comes back down, it comes, it's not, it's not an issue with women 
getting into this field or being successful in the field. The problem is there are not enough women getting into the field because there aren't enough role models at a very early age. And I'm not talking about people like me in the field. I am talking about like when I was you know, in fourth and fifth grade or sixth grade or seventh grade and I was taking math and I hated my math teacher. I hated my science teacher. I mean, they were just awful. I loved my English teacher and my social studies teacher. They were human beings. They were like, they were just, I could talk to them, but they were women. And, and so I think, you know, one of the things we really have to think about is if we are serious about STEM and we're serious about bringing different groups of people into this field, there's only two ways we can do it. One is the way the Israelis do it, which is mandatory military service, where you just shove everybody through. Or number two is you're thoughtful about the kind of role models that you put in place at very early ages, and you adopt some of the Israeli paradigms. I mean, they have a, this national security plan where what they do is at a very early age, they begin to plan and identify how many kids they need to go through certain kinds of skills. So what I'd love to see us do is invest in, you know, those coding for kids programs, but really focus on bringing in girls. And because I don't think that we're ever going to successfully change this dynamic until we can get girls at a very early age to get excited about technology as a possible field. Yeah, definitely. You know, having grown up maybe, um, you know, kind of looking Look at this now. I have, a, I have a daughter, and I, I'm trying to foster her. Look, I, I got to retire at some point. I want her to get a good, yeah, <laughs> a good yeah. job and and try to uh, encourage her t- into science and, and technology. But what advice would you have for maybe male counterparts to foster that environment that can make it more welcoming to young girls and women to be in um, science, technology, and, and math? Um, so I, you know, again, to the extent that you can help volunteer and become a mentor. I mean, mentoring is just incredibly important. And so to participate in some of the, you know, either in um, junior high school, high school, but just get involved, get engaged, try to find one or two women that you can mentor. You know, it's important. That's where it starts. You're not going to be able to save the world. And I guess I, I'm always a believer that it's pick a couple people and make a profound difference in their lives. Don't try to help a thousand people. Find one. Find two. Do that. Make a change there. Now, if a hundred people do that, that's when we're going to start getting somewhere. So I'd say start. Don't aim high. Pick somebody and change their life. So get involved in a program. There are lots of them out there. And pick somebody to mentor. That's the best thing. The second thing I would say is, you know, we have, you know, it's funny because the, I look at this, my t- I tell this to my team all the time. When it comes to hiring their perfectionists, right, they want to have somebody who's got every check box checked and unicorns yeah. yeah and you know from my perspective i will take sizzle over substance any day of the week because people with sizzle will learn and so it's not to me it's not about do you know everything it's can you learn things and um a lot of women won't have the subject matter expertise but they will have that ability to learn to to, to have that sizzle. So one of the things I would say is, as you're looking for interns, right, for instance, you don't have to hire a woman that doesn't have the substance, but as you're looking for interns, sort of say, okay, I'm going to take 60% men, 40% women, and the women that I take are not going to have as much ex- experience. Okay, I'm going to take a chance and see what happens. Take a chance. But a lot of the women that you're going to be interviewing are just not going to have as much ethical hacking background as an example that, uh, you know, their male counterparts will. Sure. Well, great. And, you know, as we start to wrap up, I I want to get to know a little bit about what your company is doing now at Blue Vector. But I I know it's kind of uh, around artificial intelligence intelligence and, and machine learning and you know, the big buzzwords a few years ago was you know analytics and big data now we're starting to see security AI. intelligence oh yeah now it's machine learning now and it's AI. machine learning so yeah. how, how do you define machine learning and why should we care now is it is it just another buzzword it, it is a buzzword unfortunately and we do it and i have to say it's, it is a buzzword but we actually do it um it is um it is a technology implementation that enables you to perform a certain function. It's just like, you know, saying I use Python, you know, we use machine learning. It's it's a kind of technology implementation. So I, I think at the end of the day, you know, the question is what do we do? 
right? And so we do, our technology um, was built by Northrop Grumman under the auspices of a series of advanced research programs that were funded by intelligence and defense agencies um, in the U.S. And the goal of these projects was to help organizations identify advanced threats. Now, that's easy to say, and everybody says it, but this is zero-day threats, the stuff no one's ever seen before, the stuff for which there is no signature. Now, we use machine-based learning techniques to perform that detection. So what we've done um, since 2010, um, under the auspices of one intel agency, is we fed our um, algorithms trillions upon trillions of pieces of data, um, specifically um, artifacts that were malicious and artifacts that were benign. So good code and bad code. And our machine learning is a static, supervised machine learning technology. And what it does is it looks at all of the traffic that's coming across the network, and it looks at the binary, the features of that traffic. And it contrasts the features of that traffic against the machine learning algorithms and can make in milliseconds determinations as to whether or not that code has been written well or has been written in a way that suggests it's zero day. So that's what we do. So we do that detection, but we also have a secondary part of that, which is, okay, so you caught the lion, now what? You know, like, that's nice, but anybody who's ever run a SOC will tell you the hard part isn't the detection. I got, like, you know, stuff coming out of the air all the time. You know, and yes, I want better detection rates, but, like, don't give me another detection engine. Tell me what to do. And so what we've done is we've, again, under another program, we created a mechanism by which once we've as we've collected that event, what we've also done is enriched the context around the event with, um, I won't get into too much technology, but uh, with bro, we have a bro IDS function. We also run multiple um, engines in parallel, pull in third-party intelligence streams, et cetera, correlate all that data together, so we essentially create a threat dossier. So we give you high-fidelity event, and then we give you a, a record which says, this is what happened. Um, as an example, we had one customer where they got an alert and they opened up the alert and what the alert said is um, a guy had downloaded ransomware. And with the one package, they could very quickly say a guy downloaded ransomware by going to a, this widget, clicking on the widget, widget downloaded three files, um, then downloaded another file, which was the illegitimate file, and after it was downloaded, then the guy did the following things. And with that event, you can also cross-correlate and see what other things did that host do. So you could see it was part of a campaign. So our tool will enable you not only to find it, but also to investigate it. So you can get like an 80% um, productivity improvement in management of the SOC and the SOC investigation process. So what we're all about um, is finding stuff and helping you investigate it really quickly so you can get on to the next thing. Um, but this is really... I, I saw the technology because I was a pilot customer at IBM. I was totally blown away because the hardest job for me was dealing with incidents. You know, once you find one, oh, for the love of heaven, do we have the logs? No, we don't have the log. Go call AT&T and get the logs. Okay. Did we run the PCAP? Yeah, run the PCAP. Did we get the front? Yes, we got the front. Okay. Did you run this? No. Go, go run that. Okay, where's, where's Hal? He's on vacation. Okay, go call him up and tell him to come in and run the tool. Oh, my God. So it was this process of just finding people and finding data and trying to correlate the data and manually reviewing the data. It just take you three weeks, three months to get to the bottom of what happened. And when I saw this, I was like, oh, my God. It tells me what happened, tells me who clicked on it, tells me where it went. And I can integrate this into my infrastructure so I can do things like block. How cool is that? So that's what we do. So it sounds like it's, it's using machine learning and artificial intelligence as an enabler, not a replacement for humans. No, absolutely. It, it enables, our tool is really designed to enable productivity improvements. Straight, straight up, that's what we do, is we help that you, you can do, we had one customer just came to us and said, you know, it used to take us five people 20 hours to look at one event, now it takes us one person four hours. So that's the sort of demonstrable ROI. But where AI comes in is our tool actually um, it has this capacity to learn from its environment. 
So a lot of organizations, one of the problems, you know, as they get overloaded is because they use custom file formats inside. So if I'm a utility and I've got like a water, you know, filtration system, I might be updating it with like a weird file format. Most detection systems don't understand that. And even our Hector may not have ever seen it before. It might be a, a custom piece of software that was written. But what our AI machine does is it learns from those um, technologies and it will actually ingest those files and then teach its algorithms to recognize benign versus malicious of those files. So um, it, is, it creates an environment that becomes very customized to you. Um, which is important because it's a moving defense. We're seeing a lot of people will buy sandboxes, for instance, and they will be able to engineer around the technology. You can't do that with a device that's moving defense. Then um, it's also helpful, I know this seems kind of arcane, but it's important uh, for multinationals. You can't share threat information cross-border in a lot of cases. Like if I'm doing business in Finland, I can't share IP addresses in Finland across Europe. Just can't. But what this allows you to do is each blue vector enables you to take the algorithms that they've taught themselves and then cross-correlate them in clusters. But with these are the binary features, there's no PII that's being transmitted. So for an environment that is trying to work globally and share threat information, it becomes a very important technology. Very cool. So where can they find out more about what you're doing in the product? Bluevector.io. So B-L-U. B-L-U-V-E-C-T-O-R dot I-O. There's no E in there. So bluevector.io. Well, great. Well, Chris, thank you so much. Today was very, uh, very informative. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. It was fantastic. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.